0: Well, um, we will be back this morning where I left off the last time I had the privilege to preach in Colossians chapter 1, back in August. During our last trip in the book of Colossians, we had moved past the introduction of Paul's letter to the church in Colossae to the, the body of the letter, the beginning of the body of the letter, the occasion for it, why it was written. And we saw really that the theme of Colossians, the book of Colossians as a whole, could simply be summarized as this, in Christ alone. That he is supreme and sufficient for all that we need, for our salvation, for our sanctification, for our final redemption, Christ alone. Um, And and we had seen this because of the the challenges that the Colossian church had been facing. So Paul started his defense of the true Christ um, with... Really a hymn, a hymn composed of two verses um, about Christ's preeminence. We saw that Christ was supreme and preeminent over all of creation, that he was the image of the invisible God, not only just in the image of the invisible God as an image bearer as fully human, but he was the image of God morally. He was completely perfect and, and righteous. He could trust in his own righteousness. His righteousness is what we trust in on our behalf. Um, And he was the image of God essentially. He is by nature the image of the invisible God. And because of that, he was also the creator of all things, of all the universe, of all the, the dominions and rulers and authorities of the heavens and the earth, everything that's visible or invisible. And because he had created all things, because he sustains all things that are in existence, they all exist for him. Everything... Everything's purpose is the glory of Christ. And we also saw that, that Christ was not only sovereign over all creation, but He was sovereign over the work of His hands in redemption. That He was the firstborn from the dead, the first one to be raised incorruptible on our behalf. That He was the beginning of the faith, the, the founder and perfecter of our faith, as it's put elsewhere. And so because of that, He's because He's supreme over all things, He's also sufficient for the Colossians. They don't have to trust in anything else. They don't have to be shaken by anything he is and always will be enough for them and so this morning we're going to go from from this hymn of Christ's preeminence from Paul's clear and lofty exposition of the true person of Christ um, to his application of this truth and its implications for the work of Christ in the beleaguered Colossian church remember this is a young Colossian church that Paul had never visited he's actually writing to them while he's in prison And, and In a sense, he's writing to them because they're doing well. He he, he thanks God for their faith in Christ Jesus, their love for all the saints um, that's expressed in the way that they treat each other. This church was founded by someone who had converted to Christ under Paul's ministry in in Ephesus. His name is Epaphras. He goes to Colossae, he plants this church, and it, it does well. It starts to bear fruit. But just a few years into the growth of the Colossian church, Epaphras is not just visiting Paul over where he is in prison, to tell them that they're doing well. Um, just a few years into the church, false teachers and heretics and these these vain philosophies have come into the Colossian church and they're shaking the faith of some who originally were bearing fruit. They were having trouble with the supremacy of Christ over other spiritual powers, over angels and other... Um, Demonic beings, they're having trouble with the sufficiency of Christ's work to save the Colossians and also their own qualification to receive the inheritance promised to all of God's people as Gentiles. They feared disqualification by other powers and they lacked, ultimately, they lacked assurance of their own salvation. That's, that's what's bringing the, um, the inadequacy felt by the Colossians here, um, the insecurity. And really a lack of assurance is a common issue for Christians today young and old, mature or immature, the Christian often wonders what God thinks of him, whether God is pleased with him, whether Christ will claim him in the end or deny him before the Father and say, depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. I never knew you. Some wonder if they are part of the elect, how you even know who is part of the elect. Or if there's some way that they are mistaken and do not actually believe God in the way that they thought they did. And we, we see these stern warnings throughout Scripture, warning us of those who fall away, uh, of, that we must do certain things or else we will fall away, that we should take care lest in any of us there be an evil, unbelieving heart causing us to fall away from the living God. And these Scriptures are meant to humble us, to keep us from considering ourselves more significant than we ought to, but they often do more than that, and they, they terrify us. They shake our confidence. They give us the terrifying thought that we might not actually be saved in the end. We're told to work out our own salvation in fear and trembling. To think with sober judgment. To fear when we see others fall, lest we do likewise. And these are real warnings. They're there for a reason. We don't just disregard those warnings. We've all seen friends and family members. Or famous theologians and pastors Evangelists, apologists, musicians go out from us, departing from the faith and renouncing any portion in the inheritance of Christ. We've seen more and more stories break in the news, heartbreaking, heart-rending stories of of men that we had treasured their works and their ministries. And it's revealed later after the fact that their lives are riddled with hidden, pernicious, deviant sin of sexual immorality or pride, apathy, We've seen some from our own congregation depart in sin and rebellion. Going from house to house, seeking to draw away disciples after themselves. Enticing others to leave the foundation of Christ. Casting off all moral restraints. Rebelling against any biblical authorities in their lives. And when we see those things, what are we to think? What are we to think of them? What are we to think of ourselves? If our heroes or our friends or our fellow church members have fallen, what hope have we of persevering? What's to keep us from being like them? If they seem so on fire for God, so knowledgeable of the Scriptures, so filled with the Spirit, tasting the goodness of God, and yet they're no longer here, what's to separate us? What's to keep us from doing the same? Some of those people, we may have been more sure of their salvation than we were of our own. And yet they're no longer here in Christ. And so I think our answers to this, our answers to what our assurance is in, how are we to know that we will persevere, that we will not fall away, that we will be saved in the end, our answers are to be found here with the Young Colossians Young Colossian Church's answers in Paul's letter. So I'm going to read the text this morning. I'm going to pray and ask the Lord for help, and then we're going to dig in. I'm actually going to start back in verse 15 of Colossians 1 to give us some context, to connect it to what we looked at last time. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled in His body of flesh, by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him if indeed you continue in the faith stable and steadfast not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which i paul became a minister father i thank you for this morning lord i i feel my weakness Intimately this morning, God, I am not capable of doing what I'm required to do in in preaching God in a way that would glorify you, that would be accurate to your word, that would draw others to worship you in spirit and in truth. I need your power, God, I need your Holy Spirit to work in me, to work in us. I pray that you would open our eyes, that we would behold wondrous things in your word. You would help us to see, hear what you have intended to communicate to us. Why these words are here, God, that we would see what is true about Christ, what is true about ourselves in relation to Christ, that you would convict us and assure us where needed, God. That we would see what is here and not just learn factual information, God, but that we would praise you through what we see. We would savor the picture of Christ that Colossians gives us, God, and that we would be changed, made more like Christ this morning, conformed to the image of the Son. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. So, as I mentioned earlier, Paul is ending this lofty hymn of Christ's preeminence in verses 15 through 20. And he begins to apply the truths on which he's expounded, or more accurately, what he has sung about, to the Colossians here in verse 21. And he says, And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And you. I want to stop for a second on those two words because I want us to see the significance here. Paul has just given one of the clearest, the highest passages concerning the person and work of Christ that we can ever have in the Scriptures. He's detailed the purpose of all things in the existence of in existence for the magnification and the glory of Jesus, the preeminence of Christ over all creation, over all redemption. He takes this amazing discourse concerning the creator and the sustainer and the reconciler of all things, and then he adds this young Colossian church to it. So we've gone from as lofty as we can think of to a young Gentile church, a small Gentile church in an insignificant market town. Colossae is a small town, it's overshadowed by these nearby economic centers of, of Laodicea and Heropolis, both of which likely have larger churches. And it would seem for a second as if this is kind of a big shift in course, kind of a letdown. We go from the all significant Christ to the insignificant Colossians. What is Paul doing here? Well, I mean, really, why is he even writing to these people? They aren't Jewish, they aren't wealthy. They don't have political capital or fame or influence. They struggle to resist false teaching. They're overly concerned with lesser spiritual authorities and food and drink, dietary laws. I mean, they wrestle with whether or not to worship angels. No one's going to be listening to the Colossian church's podcasts. There's no leadership summits that are happening at the Colossian church. When we see the letters written to the churches in Revelation, Christ writes to Laodicea, not to Colossae. When we look through church history, we don't hear about Colossae. What is Paul doing here? These Colossian Christians are nothing next to some of the more notable Christians and churches in the New Testament. And yet he bothers to take painstaking care to address the Colossians' worries and errors. They can't do anything for him. I mean, would his time not be better spent on a bigger group of Christians or a stronger group of Christians that can do more for the kingdom? There's only one Apostle Paul and there are many churches that need his encouragement. Why is he writing to the church in Colossae? Why does Paul care about this little Colossian church? And I think the significance here, first of all, is that Paul cares about the Colossians because Christ cares about the Colossians. Because Christ applied his work to the Colossian saints. His work in all creation, his work in all redemption, because Christ died for these people, And they are now an indispensable part of his body No matter what they seem like to man Yes, Christ ultimately is the only one who is valuable And precious and significant In all of the heavens and the earth But every single lowly saint Is significant to the Savior No matter how weak or strong Foolish or wise No matter how, to, no matter how mature or immature Because God does not just work in peoples God works in persons. God works in individual people in their hearts. And God uses the weak of this world to shame the strong, the foolish of this world to shame the wise. Our strong God, head of all things, heir of all things, is the favored king of lesser people and lesser things. See, God doesn't need the power and influence of all those that the world considers great. He has all power and all authority. He needs no other name than His own. All authority comes from Him anyway. He can be given no additional authority. And our Lord purposely works in those the world despises to magnify His wisdom and His grace and His strength. And we should feel encouraged by these two words and you. See, the awe-inspiring description of Christ in verses 15 through 20, should humble us before Christ. How could we ever read those verses and come out on the other end of singing that hymn and feel as if we are wise or significant or strong? It's meant to humble us before Christ. And we're warned by the Apostle Paul in Romans against considering ourselves more highly than we ought. We're warned against being haughty and exhorted to associate with the lowly. And we can approach this text... Before we even get into the meat of it, without stretching its context farther than we should, and put ourselves in the place of the Colossians here. Why? Because the Colossian church is lowly. They are lowly Christians, and we are lowly Christians. The only reason we wouldn't associate with the lowly, that we would need to be told to associate with the lowly, is because we don't consider ourselves lowly. We don't consider ourselves poor. Or mournful. Or needy. But if we want the satisfaction of Christ, we should. Because He is the comfort of those who mourn. He's the satisfaction of those who hunger and thirst for the righteousness they know they lack. He's the treasure of the poor in spirit. And we should praise God this morning that no solitary Christian will escape the attention of Christ in His reconciling work. And you. We could stop there and be encouraged this morning. Those who think they have something to offer Christ cannot receive what he offers. Those who walk around and consider themselves a gift to the other saints often can't be encouraged by those other saints. And Paul here is offering comfort and encouragement and assurance to lowly, anxious Christians. I mean, imagine reading this letter in the assembly in Colossae. You're embroiled in controversy. You're anxious about your own standing among the other churches. You're anxious about your standing before God. You're worried about being disqualified from the hope that you had received in the gospel, a hope that you'd never heard about until a few years ago. And imagine hearing Paul sing the praises of a Lord and Savior who is sovereign over all spiritual and earthly powers who is the guarantee of resurrection and life for his people, and who has an unstoppable, predetermined plan to restore the the created order to God's good design. And then he turns his attention to you. I mean, there would be this excited, reverent expectation when Paul turns the focus of his epistle to them, to remind them of what Christ has not only done in all creation, has not only done generally in redemption, well, not do at the end of all things, but what Christ has done in you, what Christ has done in you. So Paul is moving from these overarching general truths about Scripture and his work to specific application to a particular body of Christians made up of individual saints that the Lord has redeemed. And so we see a threefold reminder here that Paul is giving the Colossians in his letter. Firstly, he has reminded them of who Christ is. In verses 15 through 20. Who Christ is. And he's reminded them next of who they used to be. In verse 21. Apart from Christ. And then he reminds them in verse 22. Of who they are in Christ. And who they are becoming. And this is the basis of Paul's comfort. To the Colossians. And of the Colossians assurance. Where he talked about in verses 15 through 20. That Christ is sovereign over the work of his hands. He has authority over every power. He's the image of the invisible God, firstborn of all creation, firstborn from the dead, the beginning of the church, that he would be preeminent in all things. Paul reminds the Colossians of the supremacy of Christ, that there's no one who can resist his will or overcome his power. No one can turn back his plan or disqualify those people that he has qualified in him. And by doing so, he also reminds them of the sufficiency of Christ, that the sacrifice of Christ, the work of Christ, is and always will be enough to secure their salvation. There's nothing they can add to Christ to make Him better. Nothing they can add to His work to make Him better. There's nothing they need to do to secure it. It has been done for them. They've been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of the beloved Son. And having reminded the Colossians of who Christ is, he now reminds them of who they were in relation to Christ. He says, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. This is who they were. Who they once were. Firstly, they were alienated. Apolitrio in the Greek. Estranged, cut off, or separated. Separated from God. Separated from Christ. Strangers to God. They were excluded from the covenant of promise that was given to the Jews as Gentiles. They had no promises to them. They were with no hope and without God in the world. There was nothing to expect in the future. Nothing to look forward to in death. Only this vague expectation of judgment that they had looming over their heads. And they were also... They weren't just alienated from God because they were strangers. They knew who God was in creation. He had clearly revealed Himself in the things that were made. And they had rejected that authority. They were estranged because they also were hostile in mind. Ekthros, hateful. They were separated from God from the heart. Estranged from God from the heart because they hated God. They hated His command. They hated His words, His truth. They rejected and suppressed that truth. They couldn't comprehend this truth. They considered God oppressive to them. They considered His law oppressive to them. His law commanded against what they really wanted to do. His authority rejected their own. They rejected God because they wanted to be God. They were rivals to God in their own dark, sinful little minds. And their hostility manifested itself. And how they lived. They were doing evil deeds. Literally doing evil. Causing pain and affliction. Lashing out towards God by doing so. Lashing out toward others. Receiving in themselves the penalty for their destructive deeds and lifestyles. This is who every person apart from Christ is. The Colossians reminder is our reminder. Paul is saying here to the Colossians, Remember. Remember who you were in relation to God. Remember where you were in relation to God. You knew God existed. You knew God existed, but you did not know him. You did not acknowledge him and he did not acknowledge you. You were excluded from his family. You were a stranger to the household of God, an outsider. And you had nothing to look forward to in this world. You spent your time and your life on vain distractions. Your life's purpose was nothing but a distraction, a hobby in the face of the purpose of all things in the glory of Christ. You had nothing to live for. Remember who you were, how you thought, what your worldview was like. Remember the way that you viewed God apart from Christ. Remember the way that you viewed others apart from Christ. You only loved those that loved you, that could do something for you. Nothing was ever done in truly selfless interest. You were only interested in yourself. Remember who you were, how wicked and corrupt your thought patterns were, how deceitful you were in your sin, deceitful you were in considering yourself good in putting down your guilt. How incapable you were of understanding the good commands of God or seeing Jesus for who he really is. Remember who you are. Some of you this morning may be sitting here right now, and that's who you are. You are incapable of seeing the glory of Christ. These things bore you. These things are abstracts. You have not experienced them. You have not seen the beauty of Christ. Paul says here, remember what you did. The things of which you are now ashamed. The things that if we were to put up on this screen behind me, you would be ashamed for people to watch. Remember the penalties for your sin. Some of us, even after reconciliation, are still paying physical Earthly penalties for our sin. Remember the destruction that our sin caused. The things you thought you could keep hidden from God and from others, but were exposed. And Paul is telling the Colossians here and telling us as the readers to remember our old selves and our old lives. Not to return to them, not to brag about them or glory in them as if they make our um, testimonies better. Not to remember them with nostalgia, but to give us a baseline, a frame of reference for what comes next. And that's our reconciliation. That's the Colossians' reconciliation. The more accurately we remember and assess ourselves before Christ, the more biblically we remember ourselves before Christ, the more we are able to see and understand and rejoice in God's reconciling work in us. See, sin and the sinfulness of man, the penalty of sin in hell, is not a popular topic in most churches today. It's not a popular topic in evangelism. But you can't actually praise Christ for His reconciliation until you understand who you were, who you are before Christ's reconciliation. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. And you were disgusting to God. See, God does not merely just Love the sinner and hate the sin. He hates the hands that shed innocent blood. He hates the hands that commit sin. He hates the sinner in his wrath. He can't abide by the sinner. And the sinner could not survive long in God's presence. Not just because the wrath of God, but because they're incapable of even processing the holiness and the glory of God. So Paul gives us a reminder here. Remember who you were before Christ. Remember what you did. Remember what you were like. And that way you can see now the glory of what has taken place. He says He has now reconciled and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him reconcile this is this word is not just a mere establishment of peace or a truce right the word the standard word for reconciliation is katayaso it's it's a peace a cessation of hostilities whereas we once were a politrio, we're not just katayaso the word here's actually apakatayaso there's an added preposition it strengthens it we are totally and completely reconciled Our reconciliation in Christ is greater than our estrangement from Christ. It's overtaken our estrangement. We we aren't just at peace with God, we're brought to God, brought into loving harmony with God. The Colossians were reminded of their separation from God to show them how much greater their reconciliation is. It's meant to be comforting. And this is done in his in Christ's body of flesh by his death. Elsewhere it says that he has broken down the dividing wall of hostility in his flesh, both both the hostility between God and man, the hostility between man and other man in Christ in the church. And there is no remission of sins without the shedding of blood. And only the God who took on human flesh could shed blood that would pay for the sins of his people. See, they know that they are reconciled personally because they were atoned for personally. Their their reconciliation was secured for personally in the body of Jesus Christ. You as an individual are reconciled because Christ as an individual suffered for you. And He didn't just bring them peace. It wasn't just a a loving harmony with God. How is that established? There's a purpose there, a purpose clause. He's reconciled in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. Holy is hagios, separated, cut off. Whereas you once were cut off from God, now you're cut off from your sin. You're separated from your sin. And blameless, a momos, without blemish. This word is a sacrificial word used in the Greek Septuagint to talk about lambs and goats. Sacrificial animals. And it's used in the New Testament to refer to one person and that's the Lamb, Christ. We are without blemish, not just because we're a living sacrifice to God as those set apart, cut off from their sin and set apart to God, but we are in the sacrifice of Christ. We become unified with Christ by faith in His death and in His resurrection. Because Christ died, we have died to sin. We are without blemish before God. And finally, above reproach. See, these aren't just synonyms. Holy and blameless and above reproach. They don't mean the same thing. There's a building here, a progression. We are cut off from our sin, made without blemish in the sacrifice of Christ, in order to be anekletos, literally unaccusable. No one can bring a charge against those who are in the sacrifice Of Christ, No one can condemn those found in Christ because they are without blemish. No blemish can be found. Nothing to nitpick at can be found. They are holy and blameless and above reproach before Him, before God. This is the purpose of our reconciliation. Before Him is not just in the presence of God, though we are saved to be brought into the presence of God, but before Him, in the Greek, it's katinopion, literally in the sight of, as if you're right before the eye of God. You're right before His sight. See, God sees those who are in Christ as holy and blameless and above reproach. They pass even the closest of inspections from the Holy One of Israel. God looks at them and He can see no blemish no matter how hard He looks. That's an amazing statement. Can you look at your life right now and say that it's without blemish? There's no place where you can improve. No place where you're selfish. I mean, I got the wrong order at Chick-fil-A the other day, and I just flew off the handle like a little girl. I mean, my life is not without blemish, but but God in Christ sees you right now as you will be in heaven when you are glorified. See, the heart of the Gospel is this. When God looks at a man in his own right, in his sin and blindness and deadness, he can find no good. There's no good in him. No reason why He would justify that person. No reason why He would reconcile or rescue that person. No reason why He would send the precious Christ to die for that person. There's no diamond in the rough. He's wholly deplorable, wholly wicked, wholly disgusting to God. But when God looks at a man who has been bought by the blood of Christ and unified with the Lamb in His death and resurrection, He can find no fault in Him. No reason to condemn him. He entertains no charge against those who are in Christ. There's nothing the accuser can use against the saints. They are holy, without blemish, and above reproach before him in his sight. If God has saved you, it is not because of you, but in spite of you. And if he keeps you, it's not because of you. It's in spite of you, because of Christ in you. Because you are in Christ. Ultimately, it matters not how others see you or how you see yourself. It matters how God sees you. That is the heart of what happens in the gospel. So what is the basis for the Colossians' assurance? They can look back at who they were in relation to Christ. See who Christ is. And look now at who they are and are becoming. And they see a difference that is only explained by the work of Christ in their hearts and their souls and their minds and their bodies. What about you this morning? Is there a change in you? When you look at the person you were and you look at who you are now, is there something that only Jesus could have done? Because only Jesus can save you. Only Jesus can reconcile you. Is there a change in your desires? What you long for? Do you long to be cut off from your sin? Or do you long to just have the penalty of your sin removed from you? Is there a change in who you are? Is there any difference from the old person and the new person who confesses Christ? Because if there is, you can be sure that all of God's work will follow, that all of God's work will be completed. And this really is the one fundamental difference between sheep and wolves and goats, between those who will persevere and between those who will become false teachers or will become apostates who will fall away. What separates sheep from wolves or goats is not really that they are in the visible sheepfold, that they are growing in the field. It's why they are there, right? Wolves come into the fold because there are sheep there. Because there are sheep that they can devour, sheep that they can mislead, sheep that they can mistreat. Goats wander in because they think there's something for them there. But eventually, they, they, they may stay a while, but eventually they seek to be with their own kind. And they're cold from the rest of the herd by the shepherd. Sheep enter into the fold because they have heard and recognized the voice of the shepherd calling them by name. And what separates sheep from non-sheep is not really that they affirm the generalities of Scripture, the generalities of the law of God, or even the the doctrinal particulars of the gospel. See, the statement that everyone has fallen before God becomes a platitude to those who are seared in conscience. That all have fallen short of the glory of God. What separates sheep from non-sheep is that they acknowledge their own personal sin. Acknowledge their own specific sins. And they are the recipients of real and identifiable graces. We deal not in abstracts in the Christian faith. We deal in specifics, in facts, in detail. Those who are in Christ have been saved from real sins. And they have received real graces. Real, tangible transformation. One of the greatest devices of wolves is acknowledging the truths, the academic truths of the gospel, but denying their personal power. They confess that they are sinners in so much as everyone is a sinner. And if you've ever witnessed to someone on the street, that's exactly what pagans do. You ask them how many lies they told in their life and what's their defense? Yeah, but everyone tells lies. See, admitting they are a sinner is not contrition to them. It's rationalization for their own sin. So what separates them from true sheep is that true sheep acknowledge their own sins, not just their sinfulness. False converts have no desire to be cut off from their sin or their sins that they love. And when brought to account for their sins, they lash out at those confronting them claiming that they're just judging them hypocritically because all sin, because they're angry that they sin differently from them. They have no basis in their darkened understanding for comprehending true belief and true repentance. They've experienced no victory in Christ, no personal transformation, no true delivery from sin, and so they can't comprehend that anyone else would have either. So when they're confronted for their sin, To be brought out of their sin for the sake of their souls, it means nothing to them. Because to be in Christ just means that you acknowledge the power of Christ while you hide your sin. The grace of God is licensed for them to sin without incurring the penalty of sin. And as such, Christ is nothing but a mercenary means to achieving their own ends. And if we've learned anything in Colossians, it's that Christ is never a means to an end. He is the end of everything. So do you confess your own sins? Not just your sinfulness. Not just your imperfections. Do you cover your sin with the acknowledgement that all have fallen short of the glory of God? Have you seen God's sanctifying grace in your own life? Do you long to see it? To be cut off from your sins? Is there something in your life, again, that only God could have done? Then you can know that God sees you as holy and blameless and above reproach in His sight. Would you have assurance this morning? Would you have peace? Remember Christ. Remember who He is. Remember who you were. And remember what Christ has done in you and is now doing in you. Our anxiety does not come from thinking too much about the Gospel. thinking too much about the work of Christ in us. It comes from thinking too little. We love to look at the things going around the church and be a prophetic voice in the culture. Right, But we can't be without the gospel. And there is no personal peace for the Christians without the gospel. I'm not saying we should have our eyes shut and our heads buried in the sand like ostriches and wait until all these things pass. The gospel has real implications in the world. But when my soul is anxious, when I am insecure, when I need hope and help, I don't turn on the news to hear about China or the vaccine or the death tolls or anything else. I don't look to the end of abortion as my hope. Those are all good causes. We should be in the world, but not of it. But what I need for comfort, what I need for assurance is the gospel for my own personal life, for my own personal hope, for my own personal transformation. And if we could end in verse 22, we'd be really encouraged It'd be a good time in the book of Colossians. But we really haven't addressed the most troubling part of this text yet or the Christian life. It's easy to feel confident at the point of reconciliation, at the moment of conversion. But how often have we seen that confidence fade over time? And this is part of the text, part of the Christian experience that gives us trouble. Here in verse 23a, it says, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. Are all these assurances only ours after we've lived the entirety of our lives and can see that we haven't shifted from the gospel? If indeed you continue in the faith. And I think there's two ditches to avoid here when we come to these warnings. The first one is to just disregard these warnings. Right? To look at this with a popular kind of this, pap, this Baptist theology expressed as once saved, always saved. That just disregards all the warnings of scripture. And really just posits that conversion is all that is required for salvation. You must persevere or you will not be saved. If you shift from the hope of the gospel, you will perish. Those warnings are real. If you have an evil, unbelieving heart, you will fall away from the living God. And it is a terrible thing to fall in the hands of the living God. Those warnings are real we dare not disregard them because of a theological position. And if your theology ever leads you to disregarding a text of Scripture, the problem is not the Scripture, the problem is your theology. We don't hold to perseverance of the saints because it fits nice with the other four points of Calvinism. We hold to this doctrine because it's in Scripture. And therefore, it's on us to take this Scripture and reconcile it with the other Scriptures to find harmony, consistency. These are real warnings. It's possible that we would be misled by plausible arguments, taken captive by vain philosophy and empty deceit. No Christian is infallible. No professing Christian is incapable of sin, incapable of falling away. We're warned against those things in Colossians 2. They must be real. Paul is not wasting ink. But there's also a second ditch, and that's to take the warnings of Scripture and separate them from the rest of the Scriptures. To separate them from the comforts and the promises of Christ, the reassurances to those who have been reconciled, as if you could affect your own perseverance or complete your salvation by efforts, as if there's something lacking in what Christ did for you. Whereas one is antinomianism, disregarding the law of God and the warnings of God, the other is legalism, trying to ignore the glories of what we saw in verses 21 and 22. This verse, 23, is connected to the previous two verses. It doesn't cheapen or qualify the reassurance that we just had. So there's a paradox here. We must persevere. We must work. We must strive. We must not fall away. But we cannot earn our salvation and we cannot rely on our own resolve or force of will. How do we settle this in our minds and our hearts? I think first we need to see what it means to continue in the faith. Continue here is to stay or to stand on something, on a foundation, to be grounded. The faith here is not personal belief. It's a belief system, the faith, the doctrines of the faith, the gospel. Continue on the foundation of the gospel. And it's further defined by a parallelism that comes afterward. You get a positive and a negative defining what it means to continue in the faith. You continue by being stable and steadfast, And by not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Stable and steadfast. Stable means grounded, rooted. Having a firm foundation and settled is a personal resolve to remain on that foundation. It's to build your house not on sand, but on rock. And not shifting from the hope of the gospel. Shifting here can mean to be moved away by by forces outside of you or to lose your resolve and move away yourself. So ultimately, there's two ways to not continue in the faith. You've either built upon a wrong foundation, or you've been enticed, intimidated, or deceived into leaving the right one. And we see such things in the, in, in, like the parable of the sower. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 13. I'm going to read this briefly for us. Matthew 13, starting in verse one, it says that same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea and the great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down and the whole crowd stood on the beach and he told them many things in parables, saying a sower went out to sow and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on the rocky ground where they did not have much soil and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. He explains the parable in verse 18. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. In a sense, we have an experiment here of faith and of perseverance. There are certain controls that don't change. From from soil to soil, we have the same sower, the same seed, the same elements outside, the heat of the sun, the rain. And we have four different soils. We see their result. The first soil is the path and these are the unbelievers that reject God's truth because their minds their minds are veiled by the enemy. And yet, even in the deceitfulness of their own sin, their rejection of the gospel, they are more honest in their response than the two soils that come next. Because soil two, we have the rocky ground. It's a shallow interest in Christ, or or more likely an interest in the benefits that Christ offers. When he does not receive those benefits quickly, or in this life, and instead receives suffering, he is shaken his shallow root is pulled up. He didn't receive from Christ what he expected to receive. He doesn't understand that suffering is a means of grace for the believer, to make the believer strong. His hope was not in the Christ who reconciles, but in the benefits of that reconciliation. And because of that, he gets neither. He gets moved from the foundation of the gospel. He doesn't find what he's looking for there. Then we have the third soil, the thorny ground. The one who remains in Christ a while until he is drawn away from the foundation of the faith in Christ and lured by that which he really ultimately desires. He's consumed by worldly ambitions and cares. He's thoroughly infatuated with the goods and possessions of this world. His heart is captivated by creation, not creator. And by gifts, but not giver. And we in the reformed world often focus on the second soil the one who falls away in times of persecution. We even say things in sermons like, just wait until this horrifying persecution comes to America, and then we'll see who's truly in Christ. We almost long for it to see others humiliated, not ourselves strengthened. We focus on that apostasy that comes from suffering and persecution, and we've seen that. I've had dear people that I thought were brothers in Christ And as soon as a hard things happens in their life, they are out because their trust is not in Christ. Their trust was in a good life or a good family, perfect marriage, things that they think comes through Christ. We preach against that and we shake our heads at those who failed the test. But we should realize, especially here in our Western American culture, that the deceitfulness of riches is a far more present and lethal danger to our souls. We should fear That We are consumed by our own pursuits, driven by our passions and hobbies, political strategies, social schemes, retirement plans. We're made soft and vulnerable by comfort. We take no risks for the faith and we become sleepier and sleepier, not realizing that it is a sleep from which we will never awake. Pray that that would be what we guard against here. May our souls be untethered from our stuff. The things that are not precious. I mean, we turn and be tethered to Christ who is precious. We do not fear man in secular employment or earthly pursuits because our fruit will never ripen. But then we have the good soil. Those who received the word rightly. They weren't a flash of enthusiasm in the pan. They endured persecution with a clear sighted vision of heaven, of Christ. Who is seated at the right hand of the Father, and they've refused to be moved away by worries, by false teachings, or enticed away by the deceitfulness of riches. This is who we want to be. These are true Christians, and they do what? They bear fruit, they yield at different times and in different multipliers, but they yield. They, their faith, rooted in the gospel, actually produces something. Tangible. Fruit is not an abstract. And they endure, they serve, they minister, they witness, they rejoice and give thanks. Those are the things you can see in the life of a Christian and know whether they are bearing fruit. And no Christian graduates from grace or moves on from the dependence upon God. No, no true Christian takes his eyes off the cross and becomes bored with the shed blood of Jesus Christ. No Christian becomes disillusioned with the empty tomb and the victorious ascension of Christ and tries to find his hope, his peace, or his satisfaction in anything else. No true Christian despises the discipline of the Lord in the heat of the sun or the wind and the rain and the flood. They do not despise the discipline of the Lord no matter what channel it comes through whether it be suffering or church discipline, no true Christian despises the church, the, the discipline of the Lord. Your hope, your one hope in life or in death is that Christ was crucified in your place, that you have died with Him in His death and you have been raised with Him in His resurrection. That is the gospel foundation. But we see here that this, the success of the seed, the growth of the plant, is not dependent upon the sower. The sower doesn't change. Not dependent upon the seed. There wasn't bad seed in some in some uh, plots and good seed in others. There wasn't a greater amount of seed in some and a lesser amount in others. There was there wasn't differing weather. What changed from moment to moment, from situation to situation, was the soil. Was the condition of the heart. It depends not on the efforts of the plant but on the condition of the soil and ultimately upon he who prepares the heart. And it's in that truth that lies the assurance of the text in Colossians, because if you have grown, if you have borne fruit, it's because God has prepared you to do so and ordained for you to do so. And it was not Paul's primary intention to write a word of warning here to the struggling Colossian church. He's not kicking them while they're down and saying, listen, I know it's hard, but don't you dare give up. Hold the line. He's not telling them just to dig in. He's reassuring them in Christ. He's not telling them to do better or to try harder. See, how I often read this text growing up, how I often heard it taught, was that the conditional clause of if you continue in the faith, qualified the presentation of us before God. If you don't continue in the faith, you will not be presented before God. And there is a there's a root of truth in that. But the conditional clause here does not modify presentation to the Father, it modifies our reconciliation. So it's an inverted if-then statement. Let me state it like this. If you continue in the faith, not shifting from the hope of the gospel, then he has Reconciled you. Stated another way, if he if you do not continue, then he has not reconciled you. And we've seen this stated elsewhere in principle in Philippians 1, where he says, I am confident that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it at the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see it also in Colossians 3, verse 3. He says, For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. He's reminded them of who they were and who they are now so that they can see the work of God in themselves and be reassured with full confidence that if He has done that in them, if they have died to their sin, if they have died to themselves and now are alive in Christ, it is but a small thing to bring them to the end in perseverance and faith. I love how Paul puts it in Romans 5. He says, Since, therefore, we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God, there's the fact there, right? The conditional, we have been reconciled, if we have been reconciled. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. See, the basis of our assurance is not our life, but His life, Christ's life, because He is our life. And when Christ, who is our life, appears, then we also will appear with Him in glory before Him in the sight of God, holy and blameless and above reproach. And it's for that reason that Paul says in the next verse, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. See, perseverance and endurance, they're not meant to just be a somber affair. We don't persevere as these Christians that are just weak and weeping. And I don't want to, don't misunderstand me here. The tragedies of life and the loss of people and the sufferings they hurt they they do hurt they're meant to hurt we don't ignore that we don't put on a brave face when we come to church and pretend like we aren't suffering that our lives are flawless and trouble free that we aren't desperately fighting against our own sin we don't pretend like that but we as God's people Confident in the work of Christ, both in our reconciliation and in our perseverance and sanctification, are a people that can be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. We are afflicted in every way, as Paul says in Second Corinthians, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body, of the, in the, body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. We live in light of the cross and imitate Christ in suffering while fixing our eyes on the empty tomb of Christ's resurrection. And more than that, lifting our eyes to seek the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for His saints. I may, I may have just should have preached in Hebrews about the intercession of Christ because that probably would have even been more reassuring christ daily presents his completed work before god in intercession for his people he is an infallible high priest everyone for whom jesus intercedes they will be saved you have jesus praying for you right now if you've been reconciled you have the holy spirit praying for you in your weakness when you don't even know how to pray for yourself or for others god has not left you to persevere on your own He's not converted you and then He's waiting up there to see if you'll make it. He's given you a helper and a comforter. And more than that, our infallible, perfect high priest presents His perfect sacrifice and His perfect intercession day and night before the Father to ensure that we will persevere. If you have been reconciled, then you will continue. And it's to the hope of the Gospel of which Paul reminded Us Way back in the introduction in verse 5 of Colossians. That Paul brings our attention again here in verse 23. He says, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. The basis of our hope, of our confidence, of our assurance, of our peace is only ever the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And it's to that that Paul reminds them. He's reminded them of the person of Christ and of the work of Christ and then the work of Christ in them. And now he reminds them of the work of Christ that is going through to all the nations that will succeed in other Christians and it will succeed in us. See, Paul is is not just speaking um, hypothetically here or prophetically of the success of the gospel. Some have interpreted this like, you know, Paul is, Paul is sitting in Rome with these trade routes, right? And he's going to send out the gospel to all the world. That's why he's confident. I think Paul is really here speaking about the type of gospel that is being proclaimed. He's qualifying the message. It is the proclaimed in creation under heaven gospel. The gospel is the type of message that must be proclaimed in all creation, that will succeed in all creation and it was Paul's life calling as a minister of the gospel and it's our life's theme regardless of our vocation it's in that hope in which we are to continue the hope that we must bring to all the world the hope that we must bring to the areas of the world in which we currently reside the hope that we must daily we must daily remind ourselves of it's that hope that's the foundation of any confidence or assurance that we have we have no better message to communicate to others We have no better reminder from which to draw comfort. There is no insecurity or anxiety in the Christian life that comes from reflecting too much on the gospel. That comes from reflecting too much on the gospel applied to us. Think upon the gospel today, this morning. On the Lord's day, think about His gospel. And think devotionally about the gospel. Has it been applied to you? Have you been cut off from your sin? Have you been changed in Christ, transformed in Him? The work of Christ applied personally to our lives is the root of gospel assurance for the believer. And I love it. I love how Paul Priest put it on Wednesday. The gospel that saves us is the same gospel that sanctifies us. It's the same gospel that comforts us. It's the same gospel that assures us There's an old saint by the name of Bernard Clairvaux. Um, He said, Growth in grace brings expansion of confidence. Growth in grace brings expansion of confidence. We gather together on the Lord's day, not just to sing generally of the truths of God, but to sing personally of the graces of God that we have received in Jesus Christ. That's the purpose of the assembly. So you must continue in the faith. Not shifting from the hope of the gospel to be finally saved. But your continuance in the gospel is a result of the reconciling and sanctifying work of Jesus Christ Himself. And God uses, get this, God uses even the warnings of Scripture to affect perseverance in His saints. They're bumpers for us, to turn us back from when we would fall away. God has used all things to ensure the perseverance of His saints, even the hard words and the warnings. Of scripture, His sheep hear his, hear his voice, both in His call and in His warning, in His commands. So if He has reconciled you, if He has reconciled you, you will continue. Because you no longer live. You died. And Christ now lives in you. He is your life. And when Christ, who is your life, appears then you also will appear with Him in glory. I could have just read that verse 60 times today, and I think it would have been encouraging. If Christ, who, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. There's no if there, like I misspoke. It's a when. When Christ appears, then we will appear. From beginning to end, it is the work of Jesus Christ. Do you struggle this morning? If you don't, you probably should in some sense. You should consider yourselves lowly before God. But remember who Christ is. Remember who you were. Look at who you are now. Do you look more like Christ? Then rejoice in Christ. For He will bring you faithfully home. Increasing conformity to the image of Christ is our life's calling. And it only happens as a result of the work of Christ. It's the comfort and the assurance the Christian, please bow with me. Father, I thank you for this day. Lord, I praise you for bringing a weak earthen vessel through this time of worship in your word. God, I pray that we would see the encouragement in Christ. Lord, that you would teach us from your word. That I would be forgotten and you would be magnified. That we would see the comforts and the assurances of Christ in us. That we would look with somber, sober judgment, somber hearts, God. We would look with a biblical assessment and see whether we have really received any graces in our lives. Whether we have been cut off from our sin. And if not, God, I pray that you would bring us now in repentance to you. God, may we trust in you. May we have our assurance and our peace in you alone. Help us to forsake lesser things lesser affections, God. There is nothing in this life worthy of spending time on ultimately except you. May we live in light of the cross and the resurrection and your intercession for us right now. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.